Good morning. My name's Bev. We're reading from God's Word, from the book of James. You would find that on page 979, if you'd like to follow along. James chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Good morning. So we are continuing this morning on a series of promises, promises that God has given us through his word. So Bev just read the Bible reading to us from James chapter 4, and this morning the promise that we are focusing on is really verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So that's where we're going to finish this morning. And really it's kind of a bit of a summary about all the verses that have gone before. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to start at the beginning and I'm going to end at the end. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we come before you and acknowledge that you are a great and a good God. That you're a God full of wisdom, a God full of love. That you sought us out and that you bought us, Lord. Open our eyes that we might see you clearly this morning. If we need to be, cut us to the heart with your word, Lord, so that we might repent. And we pray that as a church, as a congregation, as your people, that we might praise your name. In the name of Jesus, amen. So we're going to start at verse 7, the very first part of that passage. And it says, submit yourselves then to God. I don't know about you, but submission, the whole idea of it, it's really a bit of an offensive term these days. If people from outside were to hear that the Bible says uh, that we should submit uh, to each other, they would find that really strange and, and quite offensive. Let alone if I was to go to the university where I work and said something along the lines of, wives, submit to your husbands that wouldn't go down very well at all because the word submission these days, the connotations with it, is about being oppressed. There is someone that is oppressing you and you have to submit to that. That type of submission looks like that you are stopping resistance. It is passive. We stop doing something. If someone tied my hands together and they did a good job, for a while I could strain against that. But in the end, I would submit 
because it would be fruitless to keep using up my energy to try and get out of that. I would submit to those bonds because they had tied me. But that's not the kind of submission that's really being suggested here. It is not a stopping of doing something. Rather, it is an active submission. It is more like where a soldier aligns or a soldier enlists themselves to the army of a great general and they are there awaiting the next command. It is active. It is eagerly awaiting an opportunity to carry out the will of those who are in authority and in doing so will not follow their will but they will follow their leader's will. And therefore James calls us, he says to us that we are to submit ourselves to God, to align ourselves with him, eager to follow his command and to put his will before our own. And then next in verse 7, James changes a little bit. And he says that we're meant to resist the devil and he will flee from you. That we're meant to be on our guard, we're meant to be on our watch. We should be aware that if we are submitting to God, that in fact the devil is likely to come to you, to tempt you in some way, to distract you, to drag you away from the God that you are submitting to. One thing that we should appreciate, though, is that the devil will often come to us with promises. They'll come, he'll come with promises, but the reality is that those promises only have power if we believe them. The promises that the devil comes to us with only have power if we believe them. In comparison... When God makes a promise, his words are true. When God makes a promise, his words are powerful, whether we believe them or not. So we think about what promises. What promises might the devil give to us? Well, if we go right back to the beginning, right to the very start, to the Garden of Eden, In Genesis, we see that the serpent comes and he gives some promises to Adam and Eve. He says to them, wouldn't you like to be like God, knowing both good and evil? He gave them a promise. The strange thing is about the things that he said is it was kind of already true. Remember, Adam and Eve were already like God in that they were made in his image. Compared to all the other animals, all the other creation that had been made, they were the ones that were already the most like God himself. Yet when they heard it, it tickled their ears. When they heard it, it startled their hearts and it made them respond in a way that they believed the devil's promise. The question for you is, is what does that promise look like to you what is it the lie that comes to you you will only be happy you'll only be satisfied if only these things happened if only 
life was like this. Whether you had more friends, if only I had more friends, then then I would be happy. If only I had complete health, then I would be deeply satisfied. If only we had a new house, then things would be terrific. If only, if only. Let me suggest to you this morning that the if only really should be, if only you submit to God, then uh, you will be truly satisfied. At first I saw these two things, submission to God and also resisting the devil as being sort of two separate bits and pieces. But the reality is, is I think they're actually two sides of the one coin. If we are submitting ourselves to God, if we are eagerly awaiting his commands to do his will, then we are likely to resist the devil. In the same way, if we do not resist the devil, then it's very unlikely that we're actually submitting ourselves to God. James is really suggesting here that there's really only two ways, two different ways for us to live. One life that is in submission to God and one life that is not in submission to God. But the world, on the other hand, would not see this living a good life, okay, like a coin with two sides. Rather, they would say it's a bit more like a dice. And sure, if you would like to submit your life to God, that's all very nice for you. They would also recognise that there's some kind of evil in the world and we like to put people together in that group, the really bad people of the world that do bad things and, and they're seen as evil uh, compared to the rest of us who are generally kind of nice. But then a dice has many other sides as well. And there's many different ways that we could live our life. As long as we're not hurting someone, there's nothing wrong with that, is there? Why can't we live my life as I see fit? After all, I'm a good person. There's multiple different ways that we could live our life. James, James does not agree. Have a look in verse 4. At the beginning of verse 4, this is the way to make friends and influence them. What does he say? You adulterous people. He's not tickling their ears. You adulterous people. Why? Because anyone, this is what he's saying, anyone who is friends with the world is going to be an enemy of God. There's only two sides to this. It is black and white. And he uses this word adulterous because he alludes back to the Old Testament where the people of Israel and their relationship with God has seen them joined together and God often spoke about it as if it was a marriage. And when the people of Israel chased after other gods, it was like they were committing adultery. And if you are married, you are either an adulterer or not. There is no middle ground. You are either one or the other. And just as that is true, James is saying you are either for God or you are against him. You either love God or you are an enemy of God. Life isn't like a dice. 
It is two-sided, simple as that. You are for God or against God. And then as we move into verse 8, we start this section which, which in some ways reminds us of the process that the Israelites used to go through to approach God himself. As they came to the temple, the centrepiece of their city, Jerusalem, where God was present. And in verse 8 we can see, James says, Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. See, to come to God, the, the Jewish people would come to the temple. In preparation, they would also, when they got there, they would wash their hands. They would clean themselves before going to the temple. They would also purify themselves through different rituals to make sure that they were clean as they were at that temple. And it seems like these are some of the instructions from James to us as well. Come to God, or as some of the other versions say, draw near to God. We can come to God in a church or a formal setting, or we can come to God at home or wherever we are through prayer and his word. But it isn't left there, is it? Because there is a little remarkable promise here. It says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. He will draw near. Did you notice the order that this is written in? The coming to God and God coming to us is before this hand washing and this purification. It happens before that. Come to God and he comes to us even before we are clean in that way. And then James says that we should wash our hands, that we should clean ourselves of the wrong things that we should do and we should purify our heart, cleaning ourselves of the wrong things that we think or that we feel. But did you notice who's commanded to do it? James writes, you sinners. He says, wash your hands, you sinners. And he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Those double-minded being the ones who wanted to still serve the world and God at the same time. There is work for us to do to wash and to purify ourselves. Elsewhere in the Bible, the The Bible speaks of God's sanctifying work or what we might call God's ongoing saving work of cleaning us, making us more like Jesus through through the Holy Spirit. But here James is making it clear there's also a human element to it. We are to be active in washing. We are to be active in purifying ourselves before God. This could be as simple as repenting to God himself of the things that we have done or that we haven't done. It could be things like restricting what we watch or what we listen to so we're not tempted. It could be maybe we should be confessing sin to each other, to brothers and sisters within the church. Or maybe it's asking forgiveness from someone that we have hurt. The main point of James here though is that we are to be actively seeking to remove sin 
from our lives. And then, James, and then James writes verse 9. I don't know if you remember when Dale spoke a few weeks, about, weeks ago about Isaiah chapter 40 and he talked about it being one of the most common verses that was displayed. It would be on posters, it would be on pictures, you probably got it on your tea cosies at home. But when I get to verse 9, I've never ever seen it displayed anywhere before. Verse 9, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Maybe we should have that around our houses sometimes. What is James saying here? He says, when you see your sin, when you set about washing your hands and purifying your heart, when you see your sin for what it is, it should make you change. It should make you grieve. It should make you mourn. It should make you wail. Your laughter will stop and you will mourn instead because suddenly you see clearly what you are truly like. It reminds me of the story when Jesus had just met Peter and, and uh, they went, Jesus had called Peter to follow him. They went out on a boat and Jesus said, cast the net over. And Peter said, oh, we've been out all night, Lord, but because it's you, we'll do it. So they threw it over and next thing they're pulling up a net that's full of fish. And do you remember what Peter's response was? He turned to Jesus and he said, get away from me, Lord, because I am a sinner. There was a moment in his mind where it suddenly clicked. Suddenly he saw that God Almighty was standing in front of him and that he himself was a sinner, that he had no right to be in the same boat with him, that he had no right even to be in the same world with him. Peter suddenly saw what sin was to its true extent. There should be there should be some true emotion. There should be some true feelings when we see our sin for what it is. We should be heartbroken. We should be heartbroken. It's not some ticker box item that when we pray the sinner's prayer, when we come to faith in Jesus and we can say in our mind, yep, I'm a sinner. I'm sure I've done something wrong once upon a time. It's not that. We should have real grief with it. We should have real emotion with it. We should fully understand that some of those things that come out of our heart are completely and absolutely against who God is and that should upset us. Do you remember back to Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes? What, is, what does Jesus say, one of the first ones? Those who are poor in spirit will inherit the earth. We should be. We should be poor in spirit. We should know who we truly are. Not sweep it under the carpet, put a smiley face on it. We should understand who we truly are. Do you see here that James has actually given us a pattern? First, we are to submit to God and we are through that. We're also going to be resisting the devil. Next, we are to come to him and we're going to wash and we're going to purify ourselves of those sins. And through that process, when we see what our sins are really like, we feel the weight of our sins. Finally, we are ready for verse 10. 
Verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Humble yourselves. When we see who God is and when we see who we are, we have no other response. When we want to enlist in God's great mission, when we try to wash and purify ourselves, when we see what we've truly done, what other response can we have other than to be humble before our God? To be honest, to say that, oh, it's not that bad, we'll be all right, okay, to respond in any other way is kind of stupid. It's foolish. It's a silly thing to do because clearly you aren't seeing the differences that are here. But it's not left there, is it? We're not being left to humble ourselves before God so that we can grovel before him. We're not left there to be humble for our God as the ancient people used to do, to stand on the neck of the peoples who have uh, submitted to them, to force them into the ground, to make sure that they understood that their nation was greater than the nation that was conquered. That's not what we see here at all. We submit ourselves to God and what does he do? God himself lifts us up. God himself lifts us up. See, we're told today that we can lift ourselves up all the time. We see it on TV, we hear it in music. There's songs, if we fight hard enough, we'll come out on top in the end. If we get knocked down, well, of course, we get up again. If we persist and keep trying, then we will overcome Sometimes if we just think happy thoughts, everything will be fine. Have you heard that? We can lift ourselves up by our bootstraps because they're the only things to keep us going. And finally, at the end of our life, as one of the most common funeral songs around, is that I did it my way. That's what the world is telling us. I love that song at a funeral, I must be honest, because it's really ironic. Someone's in a box, okay? I don't think it turned out their way, all right? And so what we are told continually is that we can do it. But what happens? We fail, we fall again and again. It just keeps happening. We never seem to be really able to stand on our own For very long, something else happens. A crisis happens. Something that makes us unhappy. Someone will say something to us. All sorts of things can happen that force us to topple over all of a sudden. But this passage tells us, this passage tells us when we humble ourselves before the Lord, that God himself will lift us up. That this God who created the universe reached down and grabs us and pulls us up. This God who holds the nations in his hands also holds our hand and helps us up. Who would not want that kind of support? Who would not want that kind of help? See, it's kind of like a, a toddler learning to walk. They're out on the kitchen tiles and they sort of wobble here, they wobble there and then they keep toppling over all the time. They can't stand on their two feet. But when the father comes and picks them up and can stand them on a stool in the kitchen, a stool that is only this big, 
they know that their feet are there secure. They are held. They won't fall. They won't stumble anymore because their father has lifted them up. So what does it look like for God to lift us up? It can happen in a range of different ways. And many of you, no doubt, have experienced this at different times throughout your life where everything else, Everything else is ruined or wrecked or broken or unimaginable how the future can even happen. God steps in. Maybe, maybe you feel weak and it's God himself who strengthens you. Maybe you feel so distressed and out of your mind and God steps in and he calms you. Maybe you feel afraid and terrified of all situations and God himself can give us courage. And maybe you are hurting for all kinds of different reasons, broken relationships, lost ones, who knows, but God steps in and something that is beyond our understanding is that God can comfort us in those times. God lifts us up. And they are very real, real feelings, raw emotions. And God steps in and like that father grabs us from tottering around on the kitchen floor and plants us firmly on the top of the stool and we are held there firm. We have been lifted up. On one hand, I don't want to minimise those real and true emotions, but I also want to point you to something better and greater and grander that God himself has also done. Because ultimately, it was when we were lost that God lifted us up and he gave us a shepherd. It was when we were under judgment that God lifted us up and it was God himself that was punished for us. It was when we were still sinners that God lifted us up and God himself died for us. It was when we were dead that God lifted us up and made us alive again. And it is when we die on this life on earth that God himself will raise us again. To the Christian, to the Christian this passage is, is kind of familiar. The idea of humbling ourselves before God, it's, it's really how we become Christians in the first place. We need to humble ourselves, acknowledge that we are sinners and that God himself is a saviour and that's kind of the uh, praying to God that is the process of becoming a Christian. But I want you to encourage you to keep doing it. That it's not just a once-off thing but continually that we will submit submit ourselves to God that will resist the devil, that will keep coming to God and that will search out our sins so that we might be able to repent of them. And in that process that we will continue to humble ourselves before God and God himself will lift us up. For those though who are not Christians, I reckon this sounds like a crazy idea. It sounds like a crazy idea. Why would we give up our own independence and autonomy in the things that we do? Why should we rely on someone else? How could I possibly trust God 
to hold me firm. How could any of that work out for good in the long run? Well, let me tell you. Let me remind you that all of us fall at some stage. All of us are broken at some stage. All of us ultimately fall short of God. Even if you're living the best life possible, if it's apart from God, then you are his enemy. Remember? Life isn't like a dice, okay? There's only two sides. Either you're for God in submission to him or you're against God and you are an enemy of him. And even if you struggle right through this life, at some time you will fall. Even if you felt like you've overcome everything in life, eventually you will fall. That might be falling down dead, but you have no control over that eventually you will break eventually you will fall so if you struggle with that idea if you struggle with giving yourself uh, your own autonomy over your own independence over to someone else let me run some thoughts by you i'm going to tell you that god himself is more trustworthy than what you are because you will fail and he will not. I'm going to suggest to you that God is better than you are in that at some point you will do the wrong thing. No doubt about it. But God is good and righteous all the time. I'm going to suggest to you that God is more powerful than you are. You might be able to control a range of situations, uh, particularly in this developed country and with a bank account and a superannuation and all that kind of thing. You might be able to control lots and lots of stuff. But actually, that's only a very small amount compared to the rest of the world that's going on that you have no control over. God is more powerful than you are. You can't control the world. He can. So I suggest that we humble ourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Let me pray. Lord, open our eyes that we might see your greatness, your wonder, your love for us. Lord, open our eyes that we might see our sinfulness, our brokenness before you. Help us to humble ourselves before you, to submit to your will, Lord. Teach us what that means for each of us individually, that we might love and serve and worship you. We thank you for this promise. We thank you that you promise that you will lift us up. For where else have we to go except to our Saviour? In Jesus' name, amen.